Well, if it isn't you, listener, and if it isn't me, host of Water Cooler Talk podcast, Adam William, it's it's been a while to say the least, over a uh, a year to be exact. And you know what? To avoid bogging down this introduction, as we will revisit what happened a few different times throughout the next year. For the past year and change, I have been dealing with health and lifestyle complications that stemmed from having oral surgery. Uh, It's taken me almost a year now to find out really what the heck was going on. And luckily, just by happenstance, find the right people to help me get back to being me. It was a journey, a journey that uh, definitely impacted my ability to make this show, but to most importantly, feeling confident enough to make this show. But thanks to some uh, uh, really wonderfully supportive individuals in my life, I feel like myself again. And so here we are back in the saddle once again. So to today's episode, today we are joined by the passionately knowledgeable Frank Ferencic, founder of The Exuberant Animal and a true advocate for the human animal. Frank joins us to share his thoughts and insights on auditory issues that have been plaguing salmon hatcheries for years and how stress and external factors such as, well, us humans are causing salmon in these hatcheries to develop ear deformities and become deaf. It's a problem that raises the important questions about our relationship with the uh, natural world. And it also raises the important question, does it really matter if the salmon on our plate couldn't hear. And then in our second story, Frank and I lament on the positive power of oxytocin and explain why if American children would just receive more gosh dang hugs, the U.S. wouldn't have a fentanyl crisis. A a, a bold claim, to be sure, but we are not alone in our thinking. You'll have to tune into the rest of the episode to find out which president is backing us. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it's good to be back. You are listening to episode 78 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Courageous Animal with Frank Ferencic. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Because for us in the dojo, that is about how to live in the world. And that's that's a different thing. We don't care about entertainment, really, except, you know, for fun. Yeah, that kind of that the flow and the respect of the living world is, you know, something you can take from the dojo and apply to real world. Right. And it's the same thing that's happened with yoga as well. I mean, both yoga and the martial arts have evolved to become something different than they were originally. And there, there's so much focus on the visual and the appearance that that's come to dominate what we expect from these arts. And it, it never used to be that way. We, you know, we had thousands of years of practice and training in a, you might say, a non-visual world before cameras and before mirrors and that sort of thing. So things have changed a lot. Well, all right, Frank, are you ready to jump into the podcast episode? Talk about some little ear bone action? Yes, yes. All right, Frank, this first story is from SBS Australia, written by Signe Dean, May 3rd, 2016. The salmon you're eating is probably half death. Whether it was fresh sushi or smoky salmon steak, Chances are your latest portion of salmon came from a half-deaf animal. 
According to a 2016 study by researchers from the University of Melbourne, Australia, as much as half of the world's farm salmon have an ear deformity, which can result in hearing impairment and balance issues. In 2021, 2.8 million tons of farm salmon were produced, which accounted for 70% of total salmon produced that year. Titled High Prevalence of Vaterite and Sagittal Autolus Causes Hearing Impairment in Farmed Fish, the study raises important questions about animal welfare and conservation efforts. PhD candidate Tormi Raymer, lead author of the study, states, The deformity occurs when the typical structure of calcium carbonate in the fish ear bone is replaced with a different crystal form. The deformed ear bones are larger, lighter, and more brittle, and the way they perform within the ear changes. This abnormality is more common in farm-raised salmon, occurring earlier and becoming more severe as the fish ages. Autoliths, also known as ear stones, play a vital role in hearing, balance, gravitational sense, and linear acceleration, all essential for survival and reproduction in the wild for salmon. The report concluded that 50-60% to 60 of farm-raised salmon have an ear deformity, and depending on the number of affected ears, those salmon may exhibit a 28-50% to 50 loss of hearing sensitivity. The findings have important implications for the conservation of salmon populations, as a significant number of farm-raised fish are released into the wild annually. Ironically, actually, farm-raised salmon have been found to be 10 to 20 times less likely to survive in the wild than wild salmon. Could this be possibly related to this ear deformity? Study co-author Tim Dempster, an associate professor, notes that hatchery practices may be compromising the ability of farm-raised salmon to live a wild life, and that genetics and industry practices related to growth optimization may play crucial roles in the ear deformity. Regardless, the study highlights the need for further investigation into the root cause and raises concern about the welfare of farm salmon and the effectiveness of conservation programs. As consumers, we may also want to consider the impact of our food choices on animal welfare. So, obviously, Frank, first off, you know, how much did you know about ear stones of salmon before our connection? And obviously, you're welcome for the amazing conversation piece you now have, knowing more about the ear stones. <laughs> Uh, uh, but more importantly, as someone in yourself who supports the idea that the fishing industry has caused much of the devastation to our oceans, which I firmly believe as well, and I mean this in a genuine way, not as like a, I'm trying to catch you here, but have you sat down to consider the impact your food choices have on animal welfare? Has that uh, been something that's ever crossed your mind? Oh, absolutely. And more and more with each passing day, because... Um when I was young, it was easy to maybe ignore a lot of that stuff. And the, the tragedy of industrial farming and industrial food production was not so apparent. But now it's becoming blatantly obvious, even in the face of marketing and advertising that tries to hide it. No, there, there, there's no question that the industrial scale production of food is inhumane. And is a tragedy, not just for the animals in question, but also for the people that consume the food. I mean, it's, it's very much a lose-lose situation at this point. I do agree. I think, you know, in modern times, a lot more people are aware of where their food is coming from. You know, we have these release videos from hatcheries, salmon hatcheries, and, you know, chicken houses. So people are a lot more aware. They might not be making the conscious decision to change their eating practices. But I think a lot of those same individuals that might not change their eating practice, just them being aware is, you know, a step in the right direction. And then you've got to keep doing the steps and the steps and the steps as you, 
you know, figure out how changing a diet may impact the ability or the the results of the animal welfare situation. But even as someone in the food industry, you know, I run food trucks here on the side as well as podcasting. I see food as an art and I see them as this connection with the animal that they gave their life for something. So I want to make this as beautiful and as tasty as possible to respect that animal. And I know, you know, that's very common in a lot of uh, native tribes, this respect towards the animal. But in your work working with, you know, these Paleolithic Mm -hmm. hunter-gatherers and, you know, native tribes and learning and researching more about them, have you found that to be somewhat similar where there's this defined respect from this animal and that there's a closer connection to the earth? That's a theme that is all across the paleo world, you might say, across native and indigenous tribes. And this is something that anthropologists have, have realized that one of the prime values is reciprocity. In other words, you go out, you can kill an animal, you can hunt, you can kill an animal. And there's this expectation in native culture that there is, there needs to be a giving back to habitat as well. So sure, you can take but there should be reciprocity with that, some sort of gesture to the natural world in gratitude, in thanks for that sustenance. And this is what there has to be a balance back. Right, right. And this is what we've lost so outrageously in the modern world, because now we just take. And this is um, this is something you may know a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. And this is a series of conversations with a gorilla. And the gorilla observes that in modern culture, there's two kinds of culture. There's taker culture and lever culture. And in general, to, to make a cartoon out of it, native people, this is a lever culture. Leave most things alone. But we live in a taker culture. And we take and we take and we take because we believe that humans are the the dominant, the, the supreme life force on the planet, and we're entitled to whatever we can take. Well, it's interesting. I'm currently taking some classes in regards to ethics and morality in regards to journalism, but just in general in everyday life. And one of the things, you know, we've been talking about is survival of the fittest, this evolutionary response to wanting to go to the next generation and the next generation after. And a lot of it's talking about exactly what you're saying. It's like, When it comes to evolution, the nice guys die off. It's the guys who take and it's the guys who realize that I need to do this to survive and to survive for the future generations after me. And I think that's been baked into our society because we got here from doing that. And it's tough to kind of disassociate those two things when we're talking about something, for example, you know, the impact that farm-raised salmon are having. Right. And we do have this legacy programming in our bodies we consider life to be kind of precarious. And so if there are things to be taken, a lot of times we'll just go ahead and do that because the future is uncertain. And we're so, we're so embedded with that idea that we keep taking and taking. And uh, obviously we've come to the end of that. (laughs) We we can no longer afford to do that anymore. Uh A, A vast majority of people can agree that there are a finite amount of resources on our earth for us to quote unquote, take. And to that point, you know, how can we balance the needs of sustaining human life with the imperative to protect and preserve natural resources? Can we create a culture consistent with the earth? We can. And native people, indigenous people have done that for a very long time. What I argue for is what I call a new old way. So in other words, 
trying to integrate some of the old ideas of paleo native people with the realities of the modern world. And that, that's the challenge for us. And it's a creative challenge. Mm-hmm. It's um, There's no one single answer to that. But, but the call here, the call is to action, but the call is also to creativity. We have to be more creative now uh, in the next 10 years than we were in the last thousand years. That's that's how demanding this is. And everybody has a role to play in that. Yeah. And I know you've talked about this isn't just like a one day at a time type thing. It just doesn't get worse and worse each day. It's exponential. It's just, I believe, used like a hockey stick graph. Right, right. And then we see that all over the scientific world now. It's not just population, but it's energy consumption and degradation of basically every element in the natural world. So, that acceleration of change is posing an incredible threat, um, not just to the planet, but to human mental health. So we're, we're pressured from every direction now. And speaking to, you know, you mentioned those old ways. Any examples that you can kind of share in regards to what you're talking about there? Native people are well known for their, um, their pace of living, you might say. They aren't as nakedly ambitious as we are. And so they, they try and move at the pace of habitat. Mm. They, they have a very different orientation toward time compared to us. We are in this accelerating mode now and we value speed over so many other considerations. And speed for Native people is really not considered to be valuable at all. If you can move at the pace of habitat, then you're doing the right thing. And they, they've built in a high contrast lifestyle, which is you go fast sometimes, you go slow sometimes. And that's what the body likes. The body thrives under those kind of conditions versus us with our chronic stress and our chronic acceleration. We try and go fast all the time. Yeah. And is that like that paleolithic rhythm you've mentioned right, that, exactly. you know, intense effort followed by these long periods of rest? Right. You go out on a hunt and that hunt may last an afternoon. It may last a few days, but it's, it's hard work. You're working your body and you're covering a lot of territory and it's a stressor. And then you come back to camp and now you relax and everybody does it. That's the pattern of living. And that is why Native people, I think, tend to enjoy a better quality of life and maybe even better health to some extent. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to make blanket statements there because there's other considerations too, right? But but it's better for our, our stress response. It's better for our autonomic nervous system. To behave that way. And I do think there's so many of these unknown everyday stressors that obviously what's defined as stress has changed throughout history, but this basic idea of these things in your life that you're like, oh man, you know, these things are, you know, making me think a little more, making me maybe a little more anxiety filled, you know, these kind of everyday stressors. And I feel like in today's modern day, there's so many stressors that are hitting us from kind of every single angle. And on top of it, now we have, you know, half-death salmon. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and what we've done with this explosion of innovation over the last couple hundred years, we've invented a lot of really 
cool toys and tools, and that, that's wonderful. But each one of those comes with another kind of threat and stressor that goes along with it. Every time you turn on your computer now, you get to worry about phishing attacks and viruses and malware and everything else. Those are all brand new stressors for the human organism. We never had, nobody ever worried about that stuff before. So even as our comfort level has increased, our stress level has increased as well. And we're not doing a very good job of dealing with that. I, I, I agree. I don't think we are either. But kind of, you know, working into, you know, this topic of stress that you talk a lot about and staying true to the story, you know, in terms of what we are seeing in farm-raised salmon, uh, as I mentioned, we see as well in chicken houses, the use of growth optimization to increase revenue, uh, we found in turn negatively impacts the overall health of the animal. How do you see this as related back to humanity's own increase in productivity for the end goal of, you know, more money and more money to stockholders and finding ourselves overloaded and up against, quoting from you, the stressors that have never happened before. Right. Yeah. And the salmon story is really interesting. I think a lot of people would find it even amusing and say, well, who cares? Who, why would I care? Because I want the salmon for their body. I want the salmon for their meat. Mm -hmm. And if it makes a nice meal on my dinner table, then I'm happy. I really don't care whether the salmon can hear anything or not. But other people who take a more expansive view find it to be really disturbing that we could do such a thing to such a beautiful organism in the wild and take it and manipulate it in, in such a horrific way. It's really disturbing and it really increases the stress for people who care. Mm -hmm. People like I. And it's emblematic, I think, of what we're doing to the natural world in general and to other species in general. And as I mentioned, I do think it makes people more, you know, aware of, uh, of the goings on in the world. And even for myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I love salmon. It's one of my favorite dishes to make. But I do realize, I do find myself when I'm in a place of abundance going more towards wild, you know, salmon that right. you know, feels more healthy to me. I believe it tastes better. But then obviously you have situations where you're not always in abundance. You can't, you know, pay the extra two, three dollars for that wild raised salmon. And then that kind of causes the stress. It's like, oh, I want to do the right thing, but I can't afford to do the right thing. And I, I see a lot of people, at least in the U.S., I'll speak only to the U.S., but a lot of people struggling with that conversation every single day when they do go grocery shopping. It's, I want to get the organic food. I want to get the, you know, the small farm food from the small farm but I can't always afford it. You were talking about very early on in the conversation, the advertising and the pushing. It's like, it's so cheap to go get fast food, but is it the healthiest? Is it the best for the environment? Not necessarily, but I can't afford to spend, you know, $100, $200 a week on healthy organic food. Right, right. We're, we're in a real bind on so many of these things. And we search for perfect solutions. And it's, so often there just aren't any. These lifestyle dilemmas coming at us constantly now. It reminds me of my peanut butter problem because I love pe I love peanut butter. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah, yeah. So I I look to buy it in glass containers because I believe that to to be more uh, natural, more sanitary, and whatnot. So you have conversations with people and they point out, well, the glass containers are actually heavier than the plastic containers, and so that means you're burning more fossil fuels 
to transport your peanut butter in the glass containers. And so maybe you would be better off using plastic instead of glass. And that's just one more example of these impossible dilemmas that we face. And it's easy to get wrapped up in the stress of that. So at some point, you have to just give up and do the best you can. Yeah. And I think you have to have your best intentions in mind. You know, as far as like that glass container of peanut butter, I mean, you can reuse that multiple times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that upfront cost uh, might be a little heavier, but the overall cost is probably going to be lower in hopefully most cases. I mean, I think that's the problem with, you know, green technology. It's not affordable yet, but when it becomes affordable, I think that's when the game changes, but the game needs to change sooner rather than later. Right, right. Well, I would just say a little bit more about this thing with the salmon, because the argument we hear is that we need these fish farms to feed a growing population. Mm -hmm. I've heard that so many times. And the first thing I'd like to say is that it's a lose-lose proposition on so many levels. The problem with farm salmon is that you have to feed the fish. <laughs> you have to, and which means you have to go out in the ocean and harvest some other kind of fish and then process that and turn it into meal for the salmon, which means you're impacting in another place. And that's got a downside. To add additional information to what Frank is saying here and give you, listener, a bit of insight into knowing if the salmon you buy at the grocery store is wild or farm-raised, you can do so by looking at the color of the fish. Wild salmon tend to be much more reddish-pink due to their diet, which consists uh, mainly of krill and other small crustaceans. Whereas because of the diet of farm-raised salmon, mentioned here by Frank a bit, their coloring is often a much lighter version of that red-pinkish hue or even grayish in appearance. But then there's also the problem of disease within the farm salmon. When you concentrate these fish in very tight settings in these fish pens, they're more susceptible to various kinds of diseases. So then you have to treat the diseases with antibiotics or whatever. And then there's a problem of genetic drift because now the, some of the salmon will escape and they will interbreed with wild populations. That's no good either. So that's, that's three strikes against it in the first place. But there's also something, uh, it, it gets in, into aesthetics and the appearance and the experience of farming salmon. Think of it in turn through the eyes of a young child. You might fall in love with a fishing boat that goes out and fishes on the ocean. And, mm -hmm. and you might romanticize that as a lifestyle that you might want to have. How exciting would that be to go out on a fishing boat and be a fisher person and to catch the salmon and bring them back into your community? That's something you can romanticize. But nobody is going to romanticize working on a fish <laughs> farm. That's never going to happen. Uh -huh. So once again, we've turned something that's inherently interesting and romantic and turned it into work. And that in its, this is what happened with agriculture. Same idea. What we've done is produced a new form of work for people and we have to pay them to suffer in those conditions. So that's yet another problem. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to add too about the, uh, the ugly nature of these hatcheries is the, the waste that is, right. Right. that comes from these hatcheries. It's not natural to the environments that they're in. But it's actually interesting because obviously I want to share some of all this information I learned about these freaking ear stones because I spent so much time on reading studies. <laughs> uh, but the reason they found out about, you know, this deformity is they're able to track the salmon from farms through markings on their ears, I believe. That's how they found that they were having these ear deformities and that 
instead of growing this aragonite, uh, a solution which precipitates from calcium carbonate, it's precipitating as vaterite. And this is caused by stressors. They even did a study that talked about how they found vaterite in the ears of wild salmon. It's actually how they uh, know where different salmon are from based on the amount of vaterite in their ears because vaterite, it's caused, it's, uh, or sorry, it's linked to physiological disturbances or environmental stress, which you would have if you have billions upon or millions upon millions of salmon in these tight spaces. But it's interesting that we're also finding vaterite in uh, wild salmon in different areas depending on the stresses that they're living but obviously we're finding it in a much higher level, 50 to 60% of hatchery-reared fish reportedly have vaterite in their ear stones. Yes, we can say, all right, this is a common thing we're finding in wild salmon, but since we're finding it in such a large amount compared to wild salmon and farm-raised salmon, obviously there's an issue. And then if we're releasing these salmon back into the wild, now these salmon who might be reproducing with uh, a wild salmon are mm-hmm. passing along those genetics of this ear deformity that you know affects a lot of things that are very important to fish. What happens once we get you know, 100, 200 years down the line? Right. These are possibly something what you call epigenetic changes yes, yes. To, to the fish that might get passed down. You know, it's not just salmon because I study stress and I've heard the standard narrative about stress in human beings. And the standard narrative says, well, this is a human problem that afflicts individuals who have stress. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about that. But the thing we don't realize is that stress affects all creatures. And we've started to see elevated cortisol levels, uh, the stress hormone cortisol, in plenty of other creatures, including orcas in Puget Sound, where their habitat is being encroached on. They are in survival mode now because there's not enough salmon to eat. And so they're showing elevated cortisol levels, but also other mammals in habitat when their habitat is encroached or degraded in some way, they're showing a stress response too. So it's not at all surprising that these salmon would have some sort of deformity. It, uh, stress is bad for the body, whether it's human or otherwise. It's kind of interesting that we're seeing these effects of stress not only on humans, you know, and I think we're kind of sometimes we push it down. We're like, oh, you know, we can deal with it. But now we're actually seeing it among animals and, you know, these creatures that have been on this earth for so long and have adapted to this earth. And now they're having to adapt to the stress. And is this stress caused by us or is this just a natural stress? And I think a lot of people can point to, you know, a lot of these stresses being caused by humans. And how can we change our behavior to limit that amount of stress? Because, I mean, we can talk about it later, you know, talking about how you don't want to completely get rid of all your stress. You know, some stress is good, but these ecological impacts of stress from humans. Good example is how we saw wildlife kind of bounce back during the pandemic when right, you know, there yeah. wasn't a lot of these interactions. But when it comes to food, it's it's a tough, I mean, I'm not saying we're going to solve, you know, world hunger today and figure out the, <laughs> you know, the food issue today. I don't have enough time. I don't know about you, Frank. I don't have enough time today. But it's tough because people need food and not everyone has the ability to get the highest quality food, to make their own food, to grow their own food, to raise their own food. But people need to eat to survive. And we have to find this balance, as you know, we were talking about right. this balance with the earth that works for the animals and ourselves. Right. I, I would just add one thing about the salmon is that we have a region in 
the Pacific Northwest, the Southern Washington, Northern Oregon, and Idaho. And this is the Snake River Basin, the Snake River bioregion. And it's, it's a large area. And formerly, we had massive salmon runs up the Snake River. And the beauty of that was, well, it was inherently beautiful, let me put it that way. But it was free food coming up the river every year mm -hmm. in, in just incredible numbers, free salmon up the river, but also free fertilizer coming up the river. The salmon would come upstream, they would spawn, they would die, and their bodies would fertilize the soil. And, and so what you get is a, a very rich bioregion. Now, that's, that's a great thing in the natural state, but then the humans came in and said, we're going to build dams and we're going to use the dams for energy production and we're going to use it for agriculture to produce wheat. And that, that's a dominant crop in that area now. So what we did, we basically get a Darwin Award for this because what we did was exchange this free, unbelievable quality food source coming up the river for a very poor quality food source, which is wheat. And you've got to imagine yourself going into a restaurant and you could pay for a loaf of bread or you could get free salmon. What do you want? So all, all of this is to say that those dams have to come down. And that, that is a very sensible, theoretically easy thing to do. Because if we take down those, those dams, the salmon runs will come back. We will be able to feed more people and we will nourish that whole bioregion. It's, it's a great solution. We've already taken down one big dam in, in Washington state called the Elwha Dam that came down. It took 30 years of work to do that, but it came down and the salmon populations are recovering there. If you're looking to learn more about the dam removal, there is an award-winning documentary, The Memory of Fish, which explores Dick Goins' fight to free the salmon of Elwha River. So this is all doable. You don't need the fish farms. You just need to take down the dams. And that would be in correspondence with, you know, taking down these dams, finding like an alternative energy source that's better for that environment. Right. And... That's an area that is good for solar and wind, mm -hmm. which is okay. a good thing. But the other thing to say here is that in general, we need to degrow the human impact on Earth. I mean, we can't just replace one energy source with another. There need to be fewer people consuming fewer resources. We need, we need a, de a degrowth orientation now. And. We're not doing a very good job of going down that road. No, one of my kind of final words here, one of my favorite things about reduce, reuse, recycle, that first word is reduce. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people kind of skip over that to get to the reuse and recycle when in actuality, if you just consumed less or if you, you know, were smarter about how you consumed, that would definitely be a big, uh, a big help in the grand scheme of things. Right. It also brings up another part of the Northwest in uh, northern Nevada. There's a large area called Thacker Pass. And I have a friend who's been out there for the last couple of years fighting a lithium mine. And it's going to be a, it's going to be a huge strip mine, which is going to consume a huge amount of fossil fuels to make the mine, but to get the lithium for the batteries for the new electrified economy. Mm -hmm. And his, his argument is that, look, we need to stop at some point. I mean, just replacing fossil fuels with with lithium batteries doesn't really solve the problem. If you really want to get to the root, you have to reduce, as you mm -hmm. say. Uh, I would like to welcome you to the show, Frank. Frank is a passionate advocate for the human animal and a functional future. 
With a wealth of experience in teaching martial arts and health education spanning over three decades, Frank is also a Stanford University alumni where he earned a bachelor's degree in human biology and has since devoted his career to promoting the exuberant animal. Frank, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Great to be with you. Uh, so speaking to this exuberant animal with these workshops you lead and you mentioned your Isle of Man workshop coming up later this fall, I was curious on how do you teach people to remain in that form long after you left? Because, you know, you see a lot of these workshops where speakers will come in, it'll be like, yeah, I'm feeling exactly what they're saying that day. But then a week, two weeks, three weeks down the road, how do those lessons stick? Oh, that's a great question. And it's a big challenge because the ideal situation would be to have a a dojo, a training facility in every community where people would learn to interact with one another and develop a sense of rapport and conversation around these ideas. But we we don't have that. <laughs> so we do the best we can. We have the workshops, which are occasional, and we try and inspire people to some of these ideas and these experiences. And you know, the word transformational comes up all the time when people talk about their workshops, but I think it's really true in this case because I get people playing with one another and doing the martial arts with one another. It has a profound effect. I think it really reduces the fear and anxiety that a lot of people have around one another. And it's, it's not, it gets you sweaty. It's a good workout, but it's far more than that because it's intensely social. And people leave these workshops and they feel really good, not just about themselves, but about one another. Mm -hmm. that, that's pretty magical. Yeah, I do. And I know you talk a lot about it, but the, the, the benefits of movement and as someone like myself, you know, I grew up around boxing and MMA and, you know, I look at that as this expressive respect towards one. Yeah, two people can absolutely hate each other going into a fight. But once they get out of that fight, there's that respect of, you know, we had this as we talked about earlier, this dance of respect and most, you know, martial arts and mixed martial arts and boxing, they're, they're focused around respect and the respect of your power. And, you know, maybe Mike Tyson said it, uh, some of the nicest people I've met are the most violent people I've ever met. So Mike Tyson did not say something similar to this. And my recollection of this wording seems to come from this quote, you can't truly call yourself peaceful unless you're capable of great violence. If you're not capable of violence, you're not peaceful. You're harmless. Uh, so <laughs> take that, take that however it may lay to you. Because oh, okay. to understand violence, you also understand peace. Right. And the martial art world is very diverse. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're going to get a lot of different interpretations. But for me, this building of rapport between two people is, is right at the center of what I, I like to do. Mm -hmm. And cultivating that dance-like movement, that playful dance movement between people is extremely powerful. I love it. I want to kind of continue on too about what we were talking a little bit with the Paleolithic hunter-gatherer. You know, you're highlighting this, their, their rhythm of short, intense effort followed by long periods of rest leading to, you know, these minimal everyday stressors. And despite, you know, differing definitions and perceptions of stress throughout human history, it's acknowledged and you acknowledge that while Paleolithic humans still experienced some rare instances of chronic stress. It was that, obviously, a rare occurrence. Uh, nonetheless, it's essential to investigate the root causes of stress and understand its origins. And so with this in mind, how have you witnessed the evolution and understanding of stress over the course of your lifetime? Oh, I think that understanding is growing radically. Just in my 60-some years, 
I can recall my parents' generation and my parents with their friends and family. They would they would obviously experience stress, but they rarely talked about it. It wasn't it wasn't a theme around the dinner table. No one would ever say, "Oh, I'm under so much stress." But now people talk about it a lot. And what I hear people saying is that they're struggling with it. They feel chronically stressed and they're looking for remedies all the time. The explanations have have gone from the scientific world now into the popular world. People are absorbing these ideas and they're becoming more sophisticated in how they think about stress. So, And yoga has been a, a big help in this. I think a lot of people now go to yoga classes and a lot of yoga teachers are fluent in the fundamentals of stress. So people are getting more sophisticated. It's great, but we still have a lot of work left to do. (laughs) I I definitely agree. And I feel like the language around stress has evolved to a point where we can start actually talking about and explaining it. And yes, everybody's stresses have similarities, but also everybody has vastly different stresses that might not always be able to relate to one another or a support system in your group. So now that we have this improved language, a lot of people are understanding that, oh yeah, this this was stress or this was you know some other mental health issue that has been plaguing me that you know when we look up to generations and generations before that, maybe that was bottled in. Maybe it was, ah, I don't know how to talk about this, so I'm not going to talk about this. Obviously, that leads to the shutdown of the body because you're not listening to the body. Right, right. And the other word that comes up here is trauma mm-hmm. because we didn't used to talk about that very much. People always experience trauma. But now we have people like, you may have read this fellow, Gabor Mate. I have not known. Okay, well, he's a physician who specializes in trauma. Okay. And he's written some very influential books. And his basic point is that trauma is not a rare event in the modern world. He says trauma is very widespread. Lots of people have been traumatized and that we need to create a more trauma-aware society. This is something that is is fundamental. Rather than covering it up, we have to recognize it for what it is and how widespread it is. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation in a past episode with Katya Lovejoy, and we talked about the the trauma from the Salem witch trials and the women impacted by that and how it's been impacted throughout, you know, history. If you are interested in my conversation with Katya Lovejoy, you can do so by, well, Obviously, after listening to the remainder of this episode, heading over to your favorite podcast platform and downloading episode 76, Do You Have Space with Katya Lovejoy. And it's just a very interesting thing, this idea of generational trauma that I'm glad that we're finally starting to talk about, but we still need to have better conversations around it and uh, allow people to feel comfortable sharing those traumas without being ostracized. Right. And there's no question that it's passed from one generation to the next. I mean, there's no longer any doubt about that. Again, we're becoming a little bit more conscious and a little bit more sophisticated in our thinking. Well, Frank, all right. Stay with me on this one. You're standing at the checkout line, ready to buy peanut butter in a glass. <laughs> uh, and you see you see the lifestyle magazines placed upon the shelf. What do you believe needs to be written in those magazines to show you that society is headed in the right direction when it comes to understanding stress? Yeah, the the lifestyle magazines I find to be um, kind of problematic because they are, generally speaking, focused on the individual. And they're all about you or they're all about me, but they're never really about us. 
And it's all about how you can lose weight, how you can reduce your stress, how you can make your skin look better, what, how, how to dress better, whatever it is. And this is both a cause and effect, I think, of the, of the narcissism that is so common in the modern world. There's a um, New York Times columnist named David Brooks, and he calls this the big me. And this is the, the idea that um, the fundamental unit of society now is the individual. This is a drastic change from our Paleolithic native heritage. In earlier eras, people had a greater sense of one another and a greater sense of community. And that seems to be fading away. And that is reflected, I think, in a lot of the lifestyle magazines. So it's, it's problematic. Now, having said all that, there is value in some of these publications and they have taught people how to live, I think, a, a better life, but it needs to be more expansive. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like even myself as a creator, you know, uh, these magazines, for this example, they're trying to fit everybody into a box. Mm-hmm. They're wide-ranging boxes because if I wrote a magazine just for you, Frank, mm-hmm. I'm only going to sell it to one person. I'm not going <laughs> to sell it enough to be able to afford to make that magazine. And so it creates this environment where everybody's trying to be something instead of uh, being somebody. Right. And just imagine life before the advent of cameras and mirrors. Mm-hmm. So this would be the middle of the 19th century. These things started to become more widespread. Affluent people had cameras. Affluent people had mirrors. And then in the 20th century, these things are everywhere. And now all of a sudden we can spend time thinking about how we look. That never happened before. For a Paleolithic person, if you'd never seen a mirror, you would have no idea what you look like. That's a radical change in human consciousness brought about by these two technologies. And we're not talking about that very much. So I think, the uh, again, these magazine covers reflect that and they intensify that. I think that, you know, perfectly encapsulates, you know, what's going on when it comes to the social media age. And yeah. specifically uh, during the pandemic, there was a talk about how teenage girls were at much higher rates of suicide because of this uh, connection with social media. And I think you put it perfectly when now we have the time, we're not out there farming, we're not out there gathering, we're not out there hunting. So we have a lot more time in our day to day. It might not always seem like that, but we have a lot more time. And so we can focus on these things like our looks and yeah. stuff that does matter, but does it really matter? Right. You might even think of the phone, the smartphone, as a comparison device. It's, a, it's an instant way to compare yourself with other people that are around the world, people you might never even meet. And now you can compare. And of course, everybody posts their best stuff. And so you might look and feel diminished by comparison. So that's that's the driver here of our insecurity our depression that we feel by the phone. And it's it's not a good thing. Well, Frank, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. 
Uh, Frank, your charity of choice for today's episode is Doctors Without Borders. Could you share with us the significance of their program and why you saw them as a great fit in the context of our conversation today? Right. Well, there's so many worthy organizations that need our support, but they are they're prominent in my mind just because of their courage to go into disaster zones around the world and help people get back on their feet again. So this is it's a prime example of altruistic behavior that is going to contribute to a functional future. I mean, the, the list is so long. There's so many great orgs now. So. Well, I appreciate you bringing on the show. Uh, Frank, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? I am, yes. This is from CBS, CBS News World, written by the Associated Press, March 17th, 2023. Mexico's president blames U.S. fentanyl crisis on, quote, lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, capped a week of provocative statements about the fentanyl overdose crisis by blaming U.S. families for not hugging their kids enough. Developed for pain management, fentanyl is up to 100 times stronger than morphine and has seen its potency result in over 70,000 overdose deaths per year in the United States since 2018. Painkiller known as fentanyl was responsible for one of the deadliest drug crises in the United Factor States. In today's overdoses the is fentanyl. Culprits, fentanyl. Lopez Obrador has repeatedly said that Mexico's close-knit family values are what have saved it from the wave of fentanyl overdoses. He states... There is a lot of disintegration in families. There is a lot of individualism. There is a lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs, of affection, of attention to the youngsters. That's why they should be allocating funds to address the causes. Experts say Mexican cartels make so much more money from the U.S. market than their own home market that they see no need to sell fentanyl in those areas. Cartels more frequently sell methamphetamines in Mexico, where the drug is more popular to help its consumer work harder. In addition, Lopez Obrador called anti-drug policies in the U.S. a failure, proposing a ban on the use of fentanyl in medicine for both countries. Even though little of the illegal supply comes from hospitals, most illegal fentanyl is made by cartels in clandestine Mexican labs and pressed into counterfeit pills made to look like other medications. President Lopez Obrador had previously denied that Mexico produces fentanyl, most notably one day after soldiers found more than 1.83 million fentanyl pills in the border city of Tijuana. Weeks before that raid, Mexican soldiers seized nearly 630,000 fentanyl pills in Culiacan, the capital of the northern state of Sinola. Uh, Sinola happens to be home to the drug cartel, the same name, and along with the Jalisco cartel, are actually the two main catalysts behind the influx of fentanyl into the U.S. So Frank, as an advocate of the integration of mind and body, uh, you know, this radical difference from Cartesian approach, as you've mentioned many times in other discussions. How have you noticed the improvement in oneself and yourself in doing so, you know, this slowing down and listening to yourself, for example? And with that in mind, how do you view the president's beliefs that this lack of oxytocin transfer, you know, that can be passed along, for example, via a hug, could contribute to a lesser sense of well-being and happiness. Well, that was a mouthful of a there's question. A lot to be, <laughs> there's a lot to be said about the social environment in the U.S. and how we treat one another. And we could start anywhere, but I, let me start uh, from massage school. This is another one of my things. I went to massage school years ago. And in that environment, there was a lot of talk about low-touch societies and high-touch societies. 
And there's plenty of evidence to show that, that there are big differences, various cultures, people tend to touch one another more. And in the U.S., we do have what would be called a low-touch society. We also have this, this epidemic of individualism and narcissism. So the comments from the Mexican president kind of ring true. I, I, I was going to say the same thing. I was like, there's some truth to what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's a cartoon. And, you know, he's just poking fun at the Americans and that kind of thing. But no, there, there is some truth value there. And we do live in a state that um, is very fear-inducing for a lot of people. And we're not doing a very good job of taking care of one another. There's there's a lot to be said about attachment and failures of attachment. This is a, a common theme in the world of psychology. People talk about secure and insecure attachment of young people to their parents. And that's a real problem for a lot of families now. So we're in a lot of trouble socially. And we can see that in the, the amount of stress, anxiety, fear, and especially the amount of polarization in modern politics. Mm-hmm. That polarization is not just a simple disagreement between parties anymore, but it's just a fear and hatred of the other side. So we have to now clamp down our, our listening because we're so terrified of what's happening on the other side of the aisle. So we're in a real, real tough state. We are. And whether the pandemic hurt or maybe didn't cause any impact of it, I think it did cause quite a big of an impact. But as you're saying, we've separated from ourselves and we separated from one another in this, you know, human humanity is based around community that's how we've gotten to this point that's how we build skyscrapers that go to the sky that's how we've reached the moon is community this building together and i'll just say within my lifetime there's been this disconnect between this idea of what is community and what isn't community and we find that yes we're having more of these individualism type mindsets where i can do it by myself and we're seeing a lot of these issues by separating from these communities. And one of them, for example, is, you know, the opioid crisis in America and this disconnection between, you know, how we feel about ourselves, you know, this connection between the mind and the body and kind of going into that Cartesian approach was the mind and the body. But now we need to look at it as the mind and the body as one yeah. instead of these two separate entities. And I know sometimes they include God as that third entity. But going back to what we need to focus on now is this connection of mind and body togetherness. Right. You know, I know you've talked about the importance of oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And biologically, there's a reason this drug is released into our system when we have these physical contact with each other because it's important to our, our survival as humans. So we need hugs. Yeah, as much as, you know, <laughs> the Mexican president has said some very interesting comments towards the U.S. when it comes to uh, the opioid crisis, the fact that he says that we lack these things is it rings very much true. Because when you look at, you know, Mexican families, he mentions the article, but just any Spanish speaking countries, there's a lot of love in those families, you know, right, kids right. stay with the parents, you see this a lot in Eastern cultures too. kids stay with the parents, and then they help them, you know, instead of here in the U.S. where it's like, well, mom and dad are going in the home. <laughs> see ya. Right. Well, I've got a story related to that because on one of my trips to Africa, I was staying at a hotel. I was in the lobby and just hanging out, waiting for whatever's going to happen the next day. And one of the locals, I was like the only white guy in that area. And one of the locals picked me out and started chatting me up and asking me why I was there, what I was doing. And 
he didn't see that many white people. And so I told him, well, I'm here, I'm working on a book and I'm doing some research. And he said, well, where's your family? And I said, well, they're back home in America. And he couldn't understand it. I had to tell him like three times. He just couldn't understand that I would go all the way across the world to go to a different country and not bring my people with me. <laughs> and I'll never forget that moment because that's how that's how important community is to these people. No shit, no kidding, Frank. I, yeah. I went to South Africa to deal with human wildlife conflict. And I had some of those same conversations with mm -hmm. the locals there that were a part of what we were doing. It's like, I can't remember. I was like in maybe 1920 at the time. And they're like, where is the rest of your family? You're just doing this by yourself. And I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, like, you yeah, don't, you yeah. don't, as Americans, we don't even think about it. But so, yeah, it's, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, what I've done recently is I've come up with a, a little diagram of the human body. Mm -hmm. I put that at the center and there's three circles around it. And these are the three circles of life support. The first circle is habitat. Because you got to have your air, your water, your food, all of that comes from habitat. So that keeps you alive. The second circle of life support is tribe community. That's also a life sustaining system. And we are hyper social animals. We totally depend on that circle of life support. If it breaks down, if it becomes dysfunctional, that's reflected in our bodies. There's no question about that at all. And then the third circle of life support is, um, what you might say, story, narrative that's embedded in culture. Mm -hmm. That is also a life-supported system. And the problem of the modern world is that we have dysfunctional relationships at all three of those levels. So it's a massively comp complex problem. Well, yeah, and it, it leads to the separation. This um, I just watched uh, some documentaries about the Sackler family and their deals with Oxycontin mm -hmm. uh, in the opioid crisis. And I found it very interesting that they started in rural mining towns on the East Coast. It was a lot of convincing these, you know, small town doctors. I know there's a documentary series called Dope, I believe, or Sickness or something with Michael Keaton, and he plays one of these small town doctors. The title of that TV miniseries starring Michael Keaton is called Dope Sick. But it was right. this company buying the trust of these doctors so they could sell something to their patients. And that is such a breakdown in, you know, that trust and that connection between one another, because here you are as a patient of this small town doctor that probably birthed you. That's, you know, how a lot of these small town doctors in yeah, the U S yeah. work. And now they're giving you this thing that's saying it's completely safe. Do it. You get addicted and then you feel disconnected. You were brought in by someone you very much trust Kind of similar to what cults do, you know, they bring you in, they say a lot of great things, and then they disconnect you. Mm -hmm. It's just going to keep growing if we continue to have these disconnections between one another where I have a problem, but I feel like I can't talk to you about that problem because we've lost this quote unquote touch. Right. And, you know, when I think about human relationships and what people need from one another, I came up with my little favorite list. And it's, it's five things on the list. People need to be seen. They need to be, feel heard. They need to feel felt. They need to feel understood and respected. All five of those go into having a healthy human relationship. And the problem in the modern world is that now we're moving so fast that those fundamentals get glossed over. You go to see your doctor, you may walk out of the room and you may not feel 
felt, heard, seen, understood, or respected mm-hmm. because yep. it's, the whole experience takes place at light speed. And so now you're walking out, out of the door, you feel processed, you feel manipulated, <laughs> you don't feel felt. I'm just another number. Yeah, exactly. And so the pace of the modern world is part of the problem, but the money is also part of the problem too. The interesting study I read about here was from a woman named Kathleen Vo, and I think University of Minnesota, I believe she, and she was in the business, she was in the business school. And what she did was these uh, money priming experiments. So she brought people into the laboratory and showed them videos. And of course, she had a control group that watched a neutral video, but the other group watched a video with a lot of content about money and a lot of money priming about finance and profit and loss and these kinds of things. And this went on for some period of time. And then she tested the two groups to see what their social responses were. And not surprisingly, those who watched the money prime in videos were more selfish, more self-oriented, more narcissistic. And it makes perfect sense. But then you think about the modern world and how thoroughly money primed we are in each day it's not surprising to see the amount of selfishness that we that we display so i mean this is the perfect segue it's like we know what we're doing here frank uh but (laughs) speaking to that exactly what you're just talking about can you explain this concept of the epidemic of loneliness and you know further expand upon your thoughts in your statement this is your quote when you take away the social and cultural support systems that we've enjoyed in a previous age, it's no surprise that there's an increase in addiction. Right. And this is something that um, that was touched on by a mentor of mine, Bruce Alexander, and he was a, uh, a psychologist working in the realm of addiction. And he looked at, this was some years ago, back in the 1970s, I believe, and he looked at the current studies of addiction done on rodents, non-human animals who were kept in cages, isolated from one another. Rodents are social animals. This is not normal. This is not natural. And then they're presented with the so-called addictive substance. Yeah. And back then it was cocaine or heroin, morphine, that kind of thing. And of course, all these animals become addicted because they're living in an alien environment. Mm-hmm. So Bruce Alexander looks at this and says, well, this is not normal. This is not natural. You can't you can't trust these results. So what he did in his laboratory was built what he called Rat Park. And this has since become famous. It's a big plywood enclosure that had everything that a rat would ever need, including running wheels and places to hide and other rats to play with. Sort of a rat utopia, you might say. And then he introduces the so-called addictive substances and the rats did not become addicted. Okay, yeah, I've heard of the study, yeah. Yeah, and it's just fascinating because context is so important. Social setting is so important on the kind of behavior that comes out of the organism. So that that really should have changed our view and made us more sensitive to the outside world. Yeah. And it, it hasn't had the influence that, that we hoped it would have. But Rat Park, we need to be talking about Rat Park. Because humans are, are no different. Yeah, we need to we need to allow humans to be humans and to enjoy things. And I, I feel like we've learned and are still learning so much post pandemic. And I feel like there was a collective happiness in a horrible time when people were, I mean, making sourdough starters and painting and 
being artistic and creative and not having to be grinded down by the overt productivity of the job force nowadays. Yeah, we've become uh, such an achievement culture now that um, I mean, kids are encouraged to start working on their resumes when they're in grade school. You know? Yeah, and I know now there's a, a, a few states that are passing these laws to get younger and younger kids into the workforce. And- into the workforce, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, and that also ties into some of the uh, some of the research that's been done on animal play behavior. And we now know that it's beyond question that all young mammals have this driving need to play, and if they are prevented from playing, that there are serious consequences down the line. Mm-hmm. They've actually done this with rodents. You can take rodents in cages, you can prevent them from playing, and then later on you reintroduce them to society, as it were, and they they don't function very well at all. So play is not frivolous. Play is not a luxury item. Play is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, and I heard you talking about play and, you know, obviously look more into it. And yeah, it's, you know, it's essential for developing, you know, a host of social, physical, and psychological skills. You know, I, I even in my time in South America or South Africa, we studied lions. And one of the things you see among or from male lion to a cub lion is the cub will say, bite the male lion. And the male lion will act like he just got killed and stabbed yeah. and, you know, Shakespeare type death. <laughs> really, it didn't hurt, you know, this male lion whatsoever. But it was an important connection in that cub's life to say, hey, here's someone I trust. I'm learning good things through play, which is fun. Um, you know, when we develop in positive ways, we become positive people. You know, I used to do dog training and there's the debate between negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. And I've always seen leaps and bounds, better results from positive reinforcement saying, you know, you're doing something, here's a treat, good job, rather than you pee on the carpet, I'm going to put your nose in it. So I was wrong in the understanding of what constitutes negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is removing an unpleasant stimuli to increase the behavior you want. For example, uh, using an example with dogs again, when a trainer teaches a dog to come on command by persistently pulling on the leash and then releasing pressure as soon as the dog takes a step towards the trainer. There's going to be more anxiety with that dog. There's going to be more stress. And you know, as we talked about, that expands out to, you know, other animals and obviously humans as well. Right. One of my favorite little bits of advice I tell people is to treat people like animals. And some people find that to be disturbing when I talk that (laughs) way. But uh, no, it's absolutely true because everybody's got an autonomic nervous system. Every mammal has an autonomic nervous system. And for all these animals, human or not, the fundamental question of life is, is my world friendly? What, whatever answer you come up with is going to dictate the activity of your autonomic nervous system, this ancient system in your body. So we have to help people to perceive the world to be friendly. That's really important. I mean, Frank, as someone who's worked with animals my entire life, pretty much, and even now, you know, I have some squirrels out here playing. It's like, man, I wish people were more like animals. I wish it was a lot more simple. (laughs) I wish we didn't have to deal with all the bullshit of humanity. But we, we got lucky to be, you know, the humans and to be on this earth at this time. But, you know, I think we're all starting to see that it needs to be better and it can be better. Yeah. Yeah, we can uh, we could take a lot better care of one another. And kind of to wrap up this story in maybe more of a philosophical way, do you believe we are 
unhappy in our bodies? A lot of us are. There's no question about that. If you look at the attitudes that people bring to their bodies nowadays, they range from the completely apathetic, where people don't enjoy their bodies very much, and these people typically lack any kind of physical vitality, physical courage. They just have declared (laughs) their apathy a long time ago, and then they suffer the consequences all the way to the other end where the relationship is adversarial. And this is what we see in a lot of athletics where people just punish their bodies in the gym. And this is kind of a boot camp mentality where the only way I can get in shape, the only way I can be um, healthy down the road is to really punish my body. Mm -hmm. So between those two extremes, it's hard to find people with a balanced approach now. And we, we don't see it very much. Sports are all well and good, but even sports kind of miss the point, I think. Sports are movement specialties, and movement specialties are, they can be exciting, they can be fun, they can be worthwhile, they're good life lessons there a lot of times, but they're also kind of beside the point. And the point is to live as a healthy human animal. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what I encourage my students to do as well. You know, get to the point. Can you run? Can you walk? Can you jump? Can you play? Can you do basic moves and enjoy them? You know, once you get that established, then you can branch out and do all the sports. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's great. And I, I don't know if you're a football fan at all, but I know over in Seattle, you there's a wide receiver, DK Metcalf, who is the epitome of Greek god type body. And obviously, he's very fit. But yeah, he's healthy, but that's not an achievable healthy. And sometimes you have to kind of step back and say, all right, yes, this is to, you know, a potential extreme. This person is genetically gifted. They spend millions and millions of dollars. I think the creator of It's Always Sunny, when he talked about getting ripped for roles, he's like, you know, I'm surrounded by trainers and health experts and people are making me food. And it's easy for me to get ripped when you have millions of dollars to get ripped. (laughs) But I think people have to start looking at, you know, the, the health of their body. It doesn't need to be, like you said, these extremes and you know, obviously, if we're seeing people get involved in these uh, fentanyl issues and Oxycontin and these opioids and any other drugs, you know, a lot of those people are taking, I won't say uh, all those people, but vast majority of those people are taking these drugs because there's something about their body that they're unhappy with, whether it be pain in the case of, say, fentanyl. Right. And they have to shape their body in a particular way to feel approval from society. And mm-hmm. so the, the psychological roots of that go much deeper. I would also point to a, a famous case, this bodybuilder named Ronnie Coleman. And he was, you might say, big in that world <laughs> for a long time. You know, 300 pounds of sculpted muscle, a fantastic physique, just staggering to look at. And he punished his body so badly that he had to have numerous back surgeries. And now he can't even walk mm-hmm. and he's on the on the juice on the pain meds all the time now so his his career is over and his career as a healthy human animal is over he's kind of emblematic of what we do to ourselves mm-hmm. and i think you know it really all boils down to this collective union of humanity and wanting to be a part of a group and not always feeling comfortable trying to fit into these groups and it doesn't always 
give us the best health for ourselves because we're changing who we are at our spiritual level it sometimes feel mm-hmm. like to fit into a community because we know as humans we have to be a part of this community and we're so afraid of being alone. I mean, you look at any dating apps and some of the crazy messages people send because they're like, I don't want to be alone, so I'm just going to throw some crazy shit at the wall and hope it sticks. Right, right. Well, that reminds me of this um, spiritual teacher that lives in Yosemite Valley. And this guy, was he's lived in Yosemite for his whole life, basically. He's a climber, a fantastic climber. And he, he tells a little story about how sometimes people come to him and they say, I really want to be somebody. And his, his retort to that, he says, you already are somebody. Look at your body. Look how amazing the human body is. You already inhabit that. And he, he makes a good point there. We're falling in love with all the wrong stuff. We fall in love with our smartphones and we're in awe of that technology. But the body is a million times more amazing and interesting than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you talk a lot about this concept of slowing down. I mean, I even have notes here, you know, on my desktop to slow down because, I mean, conversations like these are really important. I've been really enjoying this conversation. And, you know, sometimes you kind of just are like, all right, what's on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? When really, you slow it down a little bit and enjoy where you are at now. I believe you find a much happier life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are amazing animals. And let's inhabit that idea for a while. (laughs) I like it. Frank, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, I very much appreciate it. And engaging in productive and meaningful conversations, as well as your sharing your perspective on some of these strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer. Listeners, if you'd like to support and learn more about Frank's work with Exuberant Animal, you can do so by heading to the website at www.exuberantanimal.com or across social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook at Exuberant Animal. Once again, the website is www.exuberantanimal.com or across major social media platforms at Exuberant Animal. And as always, these links will also be included in the description of this episode and on our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So Frank, before we both head off into the sunset, it's finally starting to get warm here in the U.S., which is amazing. I have one final question to send your way. Within our current time period, the time period where millions of half-deaf salmon are being raised and poor, hugless American children are to be blamed for the profiteering of cartels, how do we handle stress? How do we avoid saying, we are so fucked in a full-spectrum predicament? I've heard this word wasif over and over now in in my circle of friends who talk about our ecological crisis. And when they go out in the world, they look at some of the, the various features and processes of the world and they, and they lose heart. They say, we are so fucked. Wasif. And what I've tried to do is turn that around. I say, okay, we are so focused. We, what, that's my new WASF word. And so every time I go out and I see this industrial domination of my city, industrial domination of the landscape and habitat, I have to remind myself, we are so focused. In other words, I can take that energy, even though it's dark energy, I can use that to my advantage and to focus my activism, to focus my work. And every time I get dismayed, I lose heart, boom, I'm back on the computer typically, trying to make something happen and to be a better activist. And for me, this action, this this movement, this striving is the antidote to despair. 
I think as a people, we need to normalize activism and bring that to more people. I like that. I think, you know, that's where we'll leave that. As always, thank you to all my listeners for tuning into another episode of Water Cooler Talk podcast, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest host today by Frank, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and, well, just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre real news stories. And now, Frank, we've reached my favorite part of the episode where I hand off responsibilities of closing our wonderful conversation to you. You must now take on the burden of perfectly putting an end to our conversation in the only way you know how. I hand you the keys to my beloved and prized show. Ahead of you lies a vast expanse of open road, basking in the warm golden rays of the sun, beckoning you to embark on a journey of epic proportions as the melody of your favorite tune fills the air, the eagerness to be set free calls towards you, Frank. Here are the keys. The keys are in your hand. The floor is yours. No pressure. Close out this episode of Water Cooler Talk. Oh, I love this. I read a lot of the um, conservation and ecological books that are out there. And one of my favorite authors is named Edward Abbey. And he's written a book called Desert Solitaire and another one called The Monkey Wrench Gang. And he was instrumental in the Earth First movement back in the um, 70s and 80s. And I love this guy. Anyway, he talks about the human experience and the way he puts it is that courage is the master virtue because courage makes all other virtues possible. And for me, that's, that's foundational. It's like when we're losing hope, when we are intimidated by circumstances that that's the virtue we bring to each day. And we're going to be a lot better off if we remember that because that'll make everything else possible. Well, Frank, I want to uh, once again, thank you very much for coming on the program. And, you know, it felt like after a year later, getting back on a bicycle. So thank you for making it so easy and so fun and uh, a, a wonderful conversation. So thank you. Oh, I really enjoyed it. And I would love to stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>